Hey everybody, welcome back. It's What Would The Smart Party Do? Um, we've been away due to various accidents and health and safety breaches north of the border. Uh, but we're back in the hot seat. And what a hot seat is, it's the middle of summer, absolutely baking down here in the south of England for our international listeners. I'm the southerner and my sparring partner, who is north of the wall and probably enjoying a crisp blizzard, is Gaz. Hello Gaz, how you doing mate? Yeah, pretty good actually. I'm, I'm suffering under this like 14 degree heat we've got up here, which is uh, causing... You know the ice wall that keeps the the dead walkers out. No, that's melting now and everything. So I'm uh, I'm struggling a little bit, but uh-huh. like, I'm back in one piece after nearly <laughs> dis- dissecting my thumb a couple of weeks ago. So that's good. But it hasn't affected your speaking voice. I hope. Oh no, I can talk forever, as both our listeners will attest to. Um, but it's not just you and me. So you know, in case you need a little lay down, mate. In case the pain gets too much for you, we have a very special guest this time on what would the smart party do so uh, known to many as uh, as one of the, the head honchos of Steamforge games makers of guild ball the football skirmish game makers of dark souls the board game that ate the world but known to me as the bloke in my wednesday group who tries to kill goblins with cheese baguettes <laughs> it's mr matt hart hello. hello matt how you doing hello hello yeah i'm really good i had forgotten all about that <laughs> i haven't and neither is the goblin <laughs> neither is the goblin he would never be the same again <laughs> no, you're a fool. Uh, welcome aboard, Matt. It's good to have you on, uh, even though I see you every week. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll have to try and pretend that no one else knows what we're talking about, I suppose, won't we? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No insider jokes or anything like that. Okay, cool. There'll be none of those. Right, so uh, topic for discussion tonight, um, and one of the reasons we've got you on, Matt, is if you wouldn't mind, maybe give maybe give the uh, our two loyal listeners a bit of a potted introduction for yourself mate because we're going to get into the the thorny subject into the wild weeds of licensed games the good the bad and the ugly thereof um and you're a man with experience when it comes to these things so uh, so what brings you to our manor that okay so uh, how far back do i go so i i remember very clearly um when i was very first introduced to uh AD&D and uh this magical world opened up in front of this 10 year old boy and uh, I haven't looked back since, uh, quite honestly. So devoured just about everything I could get from Finding Fantasy all the way through D&D. Uh, picked up Warhammer 1st Edition, fell in love with painting miniatures at that point in time. And they really have been playing games solidly and forever uh, since that point. So um, part of the, the activity of a role player, as you well know, is um, uh, a growing sense of frustration that systems that you pick up are never quite perfect. They're never quite how you want them to be. There's always something you want to hack. There's always something you want to change. Or I would have done that differently. So over the years, I've hacked countless role-playing games, uh, war games, um, board games, um, house-ruled them, um, our Frankenstein games together. And uh, it got to the point where um, a friend and I, Rich Loxham, um, were playing. Uh, we were very avid um, uh, War Machine players. And uh, we... We began to to kind of fall out of love with the game, and you know when you've invested heavily in, into into a game uh, such as we did with War Machine. I mean, Rich was one of the best players in the UK. Um, I was not, but I was one of the best painters in the UK. Um, uh, we we kind of analysed why we were falling out of love with it, and um, the more we talked about it, the more we felt like we should probably put our money where our mouth is, and um, we decided to start working on a game. Uh, had a bit of a thunderclap moment, came up with the idea for Guild Ball, um, and yeah, just decided to work on that, chucked a couple of quid into it, floated it on Kickstarter, and three years later, um, Steamforged is, is alive and well, and 
Um, yeah, 40 odd people working for us now and yeah, busy times. Cool. So, and then, you know, Guild Ball was just the first, but mm. the one that probably our listeners are going to know even more than that is Dark Souls, mm. which, and, and my grognard, the old self, I don't know about you guys, you've been known to play the odd video game. Are you aware of the Dark Souls thing? Because apparently it's, it's all the rage. Uh, the yeah, kids. it is uh, to a new hotness as far as the kids are concerned. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask about it, actually, um, one of my mates played uh, a bit of a demo at it at Expo, Games Expo recently, um, and he said he, among, apart from, obviously it's great and everybody should run out and buy it immediately, uh, apart from that, he was saying that it felt very much like, uh, very much like the video game does in terms of trying to fight a big bad and how difficult it was and they're sort of trying to stay out of its way and all the rest of it. So I'm interested to know with, with your sort of design decisions when you're making stuff like that, a licensed product, are you trying to replicate what the video game's like? Or trying to create a new thing, or you know, how much of a consideration is it? Like, I want my gameplay on a on a board with miniatures to be like it is when I've got a joystick or a, a pad or whatever in my hand. Mm. So, I mean, it's a really good question. One of the, um, I think, when you get a license for a, for a, any property uh, to convert into a into a miniatures game or a board game or a card game, you you really have a binary choice. One is um, the game comes first, and then you you wrap the IP onto it. Or the other one is you you consider the IP carefully and you extract a game that that is sympathetic with the IP. Now the second option is far more involved, far more difficult, far harder to get right, and involves a hell of a lot more development hours than the first option. Um, whether there's equal amounts of return on that is is to be decided. But certainly, as far as you know, Steamforge is concerned, we we really only want to do option two and we can and have walked away from projects of the required option one. Um, so, you know, to answer your question in a little bit more detail, I think when you look at an IP, the, the key to it is to, is to understand what is it that makes that IP unique. Um, and it doesn't matter how derivative the original IP is, there is always something that makes it attractive, appealable in its own unique way. And if you can understand the DNA of the core experience not necessarily the gameplay not necessarily the visuals not necessarily you know the setting or anything like that or the story that they're trying to tell but but or the combination the unique swirl of all of those elements creates like a unique footprint for each game if you can extract that dna and then work out how that could translate from you know like with dark souls from a video game medium into cardboard and plastic um you know that that is where the rubber really hits the road um in terms of conveying the experience of dark souls so when we looked at dark souls um having played it extensively um uh, you know all of the guys in the dev team are huge dark souls fans um we really had a, a deep understanding of what it meant to play dark souls you know beyond just you know killing bad guys and stealing souls it was it was about the exploration it was about the grind it was about the difficulty level it was about the fact that skill overcome everything you know, so these were all key elements that we wanted to make sure were were embedded into the game. Um, it just so happened that I had uh, a Dungeon Explorer engine that I'd been working on um, sort of three or four months previous to that. I'd I'd seen a couple of games in the market that were um, actually original IPs, but they just they did they did loads of money at Kickstarter, but they were just bad in my opinion. <laughs> I just didn't like them. I'm not going to name them, but I just I just like I got frustrated that these projects were raising. Serious amounts of money, um, and people were getting them. And then when they were finally delivered and playing them, they were probably only ever going to play them once and think, "Oh my god, what have I done with my money?" Oh well, at least I've got some models for my D and D campaign, right? And and so I, at that time, I started working on a, what I thought was a an interesting um, 
game engine for a dungeon explorer. And then so when, when the Dark Souls license became available to us, um, it, it was just serendipity, really. We just matched the two together. And then it was really deep diving into into the IP, understanding what it was we wanted to translate across, what we knew would work, what we knew wouldn't work. And then um, the, the stuff that we felt was important that we couldn't translate into cardboard and plastic was then, that was the hardest bit. That was the bit where you nearly, you really need to think about how you create a... Um, almost not an homage, but like a facsimile of it or like a, a an abstraction of it. So obviously in Dark Souls, you know, um, uh, part of the skill is, is bit timing when to dodge. Yeah. Now we can't do a timing when to dodge because the dice determine what the dodge is. However, what we could do is determine a strategic decision on when to dodge because dodging costs you a stamina and stamina is important because if you use it all up, you're going to die. So in a way, we were able to build in the, the skill element of it into what was essentially an RNG uh, component of the game um, yeah I, I mean I, I feel like I've rambled on massively I could keep going or, or you could ask me another question <laughs> to help me get back onto the onto the track I've started talking about Dyson and stuff already it's, it's, yeah once I start going it's hard to stop me I did bring a book. It's fine. <laughs> so that, I mean, that, that's good. But to sort of like wrap up two of the things we've already talked about, then, so you try and get uh, be faithful to the the IP, which is something I value, and we can come on later to some RPG examples where I think that's perhaps not happened, and I'm disappointed. Much like you were saying, where someone played a game once and then it played again, I've felt that a few times with some RPGs. Um, but do you, you've also mentioned that you yourself like loved hacking things and creating your homebrews and that sort of thing. So, what sort of response do you get off like the diehards, people who really like this kind of stuff? I mean, how how much of an ear have you got to sort of the fans who go like, "Well, you've done this, and I'd have done it that way," or "This doesn't replicate that well enough," or "Where's this element that's missing from the video game that I really loved about it that you're not doing?" Do you, do you get a lot of that? Do you have like an engaged fan community that all give you their opinion on what you did right or wrong, or? Did you like go through a beta and take oh, all that? We... Or what happens? Yeah, no, we, we've definitely got an engaged community that will tell us what they uh, what they believe. Um, now, the, the the secret to it is is listening to everyone and um, and then making your own decision. Because I think if you're led by the nose by a community, however big or small it is, um, the basic rule of the internet is you'll never please everyone. So whatever you do, someone will always feel it's the best thing ever and someone else will always feel it's the worst thing ever. So what's really important as a, you know, a content provider or content creator is, is you have a clear vision of what you want to achieve with it and you, you, you hold to your principles. And it's bloody tough sometimes, you know. Um, uh, certainly, you know, uh, with Gilball, um, we have, for example, an awful lot of changes uh, or an awful lot of things that are happening behind the scenes and right now people are saying, oh, well, this model's completely broken. It's like, well, trust me, guys, like in literally in a month's time, he's not going to be broken, <laughs> right? He's actually going to be just right when I release this thing that I can't tell you about for another four weeks. So sometimes you need to kind of suck it up. Sometimes you need to, you always need to listen, though, because however confident you are, I think, um, I think it's very easy to fall into a trap of believing that you know everything. And and the minute you become complacent, the minute you believe your own hype is is the minute that I I think you you're doomed basically. Um, I think I think staying humble, staying grounded, and and listening to feedback, and really just understanding why people are saying what they're saying, not necessarily what they're saying, um, is is such an essential skill. To, you know, for life, not just for kind of you know content creation. 
Um, it's the motivation. It's what motivates people to say what they're saying, not what are they actually saying, is is probably the most important thing. Oh, makes sense. Okay, so question for both of you then. So, um, and you can't pick Dark Souls, Matt. <laughs> Sorry, no. Matt. Okay. Um, so, what what are some examples that that we personally like? So, a bit of a favourites list, I suppose, of um, licensed stuff that we've seen that we think is done really well. And I suppose when we say done really well, uh, echoing what Gaz has just just questioned you on is that probably means lined up with what we would have done if we'd have had the time and money. So, <laughs> so what's what's some examples of some licensed stuff that that you think uh, is aspirational or even inspirational for you? Then, Matt, have you seen stuff that you've really loved before? I think. Um... I mean, a really recent example was the Star Wars RPG that we started playing. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that really feels like it um, It hits the money for me. And, and Star Wars has always been a bit of a bogey IP for, for role-playing groups that I've been involved with. No, you know, no one seems to have really hit it off well. We tried it with like the D6 system uh, back in the day. Um, and then the, the previous version uh, where, unless you're a Force user, you just weren't going to have any fun. Um, it's kind of skewed it not quite right whereas this time around i think they've kind of it feels like they've hit the money on the head like everyone feels awesome and i think that's you know for example star wars was built the original story was built um using the hero's journey as a framework um and if you take that as a as a core central theme that everyone is a hero in their own story i think that's one of the core strands of dna that needs to translate through into what makes a star wars game a good star wars game and for me the, the current star wars um the the ffg um role-playing game allows every person to feel like they're a hero in their own story whereas the previous version um like i say unless you were a force user you kind of just were a bit part player which meant that you felt like a part actor in someone else's story and and i'm sorry but that's not i don't role play to to be the star in someone else's show Right, I, I kind of want to be the star in my own show, and I, you know, sure I'll share the spotlight with everyone else around the table, um, okay, occasionally. Um, but, but you know, I want to be the star, and I, and I think I think Star Wars kind of hits it on the head for me in terms of RPGs right now. So I think my uh, my pick's the one ring bask, which we've we've talked about before, but it's got a lot, lot of groovy elements in it. Uh, certainly, like the travel thing, like when my players went through Merc Wood. That was an epic adventure for them, and you know they all said straight afterwards, "We're not going through there again." Whereas for most other games, if you have a, a map and you've got like this forest you have to go through, and you go from point A to B, you know they get hand waved or you just do it or whatever. You, you don't get that sense of journey, which is a big thing from the source material. So, so that's really good. And there's stuff around them. The GM can spend hate to do bad things to the players, and there's the eye of the Sauron, which ticks up as it gets more and more interested in you and that sort of stuff. And players have hope, which they can use to try and overcome these difficulties. So there's lots of goods. I mean, there are there are some things I'd have done differently, much like the um, the fans we've talked about already tonight. I, I would have done several things quite differently. But I think a, a large, broad stroke, certainly compared to the old Merp stuff or Royal Master or whatever else, um, really good stuff. It really emulates the source material. But it just suddenly occurred to me that one of the... Um... Uh, we both talked about role-playing games, but to answer the question, like looking at a board game, um, I think um, the um, uh, Battlestar Galactica game absolutely hits it completely on the head um, in terms of the the paranoia of who is a Cylon um, and the fact that you're trying to work together and yet someone's trying to work against you and you're trying to piece it together. And it really conjures up that kind of feeling of the show. So um, sorry, that just suddenly randomly appeared in my brain and I thought I ought to share it with you. Before I lose it, it's, it's old age. If I don't say it straight away, it just goes. 
I, I think it. <laughs> yeah, write yeah. stuff down. That's what I do. <laughs> um, it ties into the kind of um, getting the mechanics right discussion as well, though. I think because one of my early experiences of Battlestar Galactica, and, and agree broadly with you, but it was that the um, the baddies didn't start turning up early enough. So no base ships turned up. There's no, you know, nothing was happening, and there's nothing we could do mechanically in the game to proactively prepare for when it did just because of the way that the random events were sorted out. So then all of a sudden it was like a bear ship every turn and we just got absolutely crushed later on. But we had about two or three turns where we couldn't, we didn't have anything to fight and there was nothing we could do to prepare. So we're all just kind of sit around waiting for something bad to happen. And then when it did, it was overwhelming and we couldn't stop it. So, you know, there's always going to be issues with some games and sometimes things don't blow you away. But that seemed like quite a big flaw to me from that point of view. And uh, I don't know. Maybe if I went back and played it more, that might be an aberration that only happens one time in a hundred. But because it was like my second or third game, that sort of put me right off it, to be honest. Yeah, no, I can understand that. It is hard, especially when you've got so many moving parts um, in, a, in a game to, to make sure it's balanced in every kind of playthrough. You know, th- th- that sounds to me like there's, that was more of a combination of events to set it up for, for, not, for a less than optimal experience. But um, it kind of sucks when it happens um, your second time out the gate, I guess. Well, aren't board games by their very nature? They've got to be harder things to be able to replicate the IP because I'm thinking with a role-playing game, you could pick up a copy of Fate, as many people do, and decide to play Game of Thrones that night or that kind of thing. And you don't necessarily need a fully licensed RPG, but you'll get an RPG session that night, which is quite like Game of Thrones if everybody's bought into it and everyone understands the background and the characterization, And all you've got to do is watch a show to get the hang of that. But you couldn't just like you know whiz up a Game of Thrones board game for that evening. It it clearly I think there's probably a lot more there's a lot more fail traps that you have to avoid well, it, to get it right. It, it touches into to one of the things I love the most about role playing, um, and one of the reasons why I keep playing it is um, I'm acutely aware when I'm role playing that I have a very clear picture in my head. So like you know Baz, when you're running a game, you may not describe the tavern perfectly but you give a you say you're in a tavern you describe a few key features i'm painting an image in in my head of what this tavern looks like to me now Mm. people else you know around the table have their own pictures of what that tavern is and so do you and it doesn't matter that each of our images of that tavern are different we actually all coexist in these different instances of the same tavern within the game space and i love that about role-playing game that it's it's actually all about your own personal um, image of what you're doing, but it's a shared experience, but one that mm. you create yourself with friends. And I think that for me is the magic of role playing and, and playing, you know, and playing games with friends. Whereas with a board game, you don't actually have that ability to create the world. You have to create the world for everyone, and 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 you have to um, you have to create a world that appeals to everyone. And the problem is when you try to appeal to everyone, you have appeal to the lowest denominator and that's where you start mm. ending up with the difference between a McDonald's burger and a and a and a custom gourmet handmade burger from you know uh, an awesome unique burger shop um <laughs> McDonald's has basically appealed to the lowest common denominator in order for them to appeal to the broadest possible spectrum and it is it is a is the same same burger that you get everywhere in the world any McDonald's you go to a quarter pound of cheese is the same damn burger whereas mm. you go to the custom burger that's a much better better quality burger, but you couldn't guarantee that quality or that same experience everywhere you went. 
um, because the chefs would be different and the kitchen would be different and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's the same with, with board games and, and with role-playing games. Role-playing games, essentially, we're, we are all our own gourmet chefs making up our own special burgers, whereas with a board game, you have to try and make the best burger you can that appeals to everybody and it fits everybody's image of what the world should look like. Um, so, so yeah, there, there is a massive overhead, I think, in, in world creation or setting creation or experience creation. The actual mechanics of board games are generally very simple, uh, or they should be. Um, you, you know, you don't want to spend hours and hours trying to learn, you know, a board game. Um, you want to get in and start rolling dice and understand it, but you want to you want to get into the experience as quickly as possible. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just to head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. It all goes into the portable whole of the posting costs and helps us look after you every month with new Smart Party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the Smart Party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! So on that analogy then, sort of pushing it forward into licensed RPGs, there was a time around the 2000s, I want to say, where D20 was the go-to system for the industry um, and for the punter as well. And I lost count of the amount of licensed D20 versions of games that I saw from Conan to Call of Cthulhu to, well, nearly everything, even Traveller. And some of it was just riffing away on other RPG properties, but plenty of licensed stuff in there too. I, I don't know if any of those games are getting played 10 years later. Um, and maybe that's an unfair stick yardstick to hold up to any game gets played 10 years later, but, but they seem to be quite flash in the pan. And is that because, do you think it's applying that McDonald's analogy to it? There's, there's a certain set of ingredients, which is D20, and you can't produce necessarily a gourmet meal from that or a unique and individual one. I don't know. What do you think, guys? Uh, yeah, I think you're, you're probably right, and and partly it comes back to that option one that Matt talked about earlier. That if you're just going to d20 everything, then you're just applying a system to an IP, and you're not really sort of building the the benefits that that come with one with the other. If you know what I mean. So d20 is good at doing a certain type of thing. So if you want to kill orcs, then it's got a you know, decent engine for doing that. You can work out who gets to hit them first and all that kind of stuff. But if it's something like a you know a journey through Mirkwood, it's just not got the inbuilt stuff in there, and then you end up adding stuff to it to try and make it do the thing that you want it to for the IP, which it might not be very good at. And you kind of then you're just adding rules block, and that comes down to the sort of discussion we were having just a moment ago about trying to keep things simple enough that people can get into it and get onto the experience. So yeah, I mean the trouble is as well with the D twenty thing when it happened was that a lot of it wasn't very good. You could probably look at the top ten percent, and there's some really good product, <laughs> and then there's just a lot of crap out there because it became a free license. It was about the time anyone thought they could write a book, and some people were just churning stuff out. You know, I'll not mention the publishers, but there were, there, it was like a book a week almost. Like you just possibly can't have the quality if that's the sort of uh, speed. You know, we have like writers. I think we're on about like ten grand a year, and they have to produce ten thousand words a week. And you know they're just coming out with like horrible spell checks. Yeah, there was no grammar. It wasn't laid out properly. The art was awful. The you know sentences were cut off halfway through. All that kind of stuff. So you ended up with not even McDonald's. It was more kind of like I'd probably attribute it to sort of like burger vans you get outside clubs at three a.m. Where it's like people just got the cheapest stuff they can and just <laughs> slapping it out to drunk folk hoping they'll buy it. And for a while they did. I think uh, it just took a little while for people to sober up mm. and then go. Do you know what? 
I don't think I can face one of them while I'm sober. I need, uh, I need something a bit more decent inside my stomach and get a proper Sunday lunch down the pub. I don't know if this food allergy has gone a bit too far now. That's because I'm eating my dinner, I think. What you're eating is not dinner. <laughs> it is delicious, it just doesn't look it. It looks like a bunch of random game mechanics jumped into a bowl. <laughs> yeah. Well, a, a friend... Uh, friend of the show, um, he was looking at the new Star Trek RPG from Odiphius and he's got a similar sort of feel to it. This is an odd one in that I've not read it so I can't. I don't want to like slate the game or anything like that but he's saying it does feel to him a little bit like it's their stock system and they've just made a Star Trek game out of it rather than looking at how you make a Star Trek game and then what system will we use. Um, and there's an odd sort of multimedia thing about it that he didn't like in that it's laid out like the old um, the dashboards for the new generation where they've got the so like the coloured strips of stuff around things, it's a black screen with coloured lettering and so it looks really nice and it looks good on a tablet. And they said that's apparently their design decision was to make it good for people to look at on tablets, because that's what a lot of people do these days. But from his point of view of trying to look at it as a PDF and get some gaming going on or like understand the rules, he said it was really difficult and he couldn't get it, but he can see why they did what they did. It just seems a bit I don't know if there's a thing there as well where we're trying to move into a different set of media for everything we do as well and make it a bit more tech-savvy and perhaps that's another layer of complexity on do you want form over function and do you want it to look good or used, how, how do you use it and that kind of stuff. I think, um, I mean, I, I, I know Chris um, over at Modiphius and I know that he he invests um, a lot of time and energy into the creation of the games that he does and I think he he firmly believes in the like the core system um, that a lot of his games are you know are using right now, and I, I can see it as a you know uh, from a from a development point of view that he has a game engine that he knows he work that works, and I think that what that can do is that can free you up to invest more of your development time into actually building the game into the game into the world um, or into the setting. Um, I mean, I'm not a huge Trekkie fan, so I couldn't possibly comment on. Um, how it matches up with the uh, with with the original IP or not? But um, um, I, I think I think the biggest problem that you've got really with role playing games is I think the margins are so it's quite dull. Unfortunately, at some point in time, you have to talk about the business side of things. You know, these these people who make these games, um, unless they're kind of indie homebrew, um. You know, really are trying to keep the lights on so they can keep making content uh, for for all of us to kind of buy and enjoy. And and when you're looking at you know a print run of five thousand units being a being an amazing success uh, for a, for an RPG that isn't D and D or Pathfinder, um, you you realise that the margins are super tight. So I, I'm not I'm not at all surprised in the day, in the D twenty heyday that a lot of people saw that as a really convenient way for them to get an awful lot of products out in a very short space of time because a lot of the heavy lifting was already done and it was just renaming abilities and renaming feats and and putting a bit of a wrapper on it and you could put put a product out the door you know in a really short space of time but um i think uh i think the the market now the is is a lot more savvy and a lot more demanding and i think I think strong products will survive. I don't know if any games being released now will still be played in 10 years. Like you say, Baz, I think that might be an unfair um, bench- mm, benchmark for us to hold anything to. Um, that being said, you know, well, D&D will still be played in 10 years. It won't be 5e, though. Um, that's that's for sure. They'll have, they'll have kind of gone, gone through several editions at that point. But, um, but I think people, you know, people will pick up games... Um, 
for a lot of different reasons now and um, they will continue to play good games and they will drop games that aren't great um, like well just trying to think of an example of a game that I picked up I picked up um, Simbarum actually artwork's amazing world is amazing um, the stories that you kind of you can imagine in that world brilliant I didn't get the engine at all I didn't it just didn't work for me so it was one of those things that I read um, and wistfully imagined playing it but I just couldn't see myself using the system so I've never played it and never run it but um, you know it was a brilliant looking game and I picked it up for the artwork um, so I don't quite know where I'm going with the point it's more <laughs> you know it's it's more unfortunately so many aspects factor into the decision making certainly with you know and this is why license IPs is so appealing to go down option one sometimes because it is an an easy route to get a return on you know a good return on, on your time invested um, but it's it, it's and it's more risky to go with option two. I just think the long-term returns are far greater on option two that if you become known for being that kind of um, publisher or developer who who does, you know, take care in the products and, you know, acts as a custodian of the IP, I think people will be much more willing to, to take a leap of faith and try the next game that you bring out and, and hopefully be pleasantly surprised with it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of... I've got the same sort of thing as you for, for Simbury. Me and Baz both uh, bought into it, but we're probably not sold in it, I think it's fair to say. Although we, we got um, Paul Bodowski on a few weeks ago to talk about it, and he explained how we might read it better this time, uh, i.e. by going from the back, back, you know what I mean, to read the adventure first and, and go back <laughs> through it, and you probably get a bit more from it by getting sucked into the world and what you might do, and then look at the mechanics last sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I bought into all those mm. Swedish games. I recently bought Coriolis, the science fiction one they did, which um, Medifius are, are, are printed over here, or distributed anyway over here. Uh, I'm thinking of getting Mutant Year Zero, one or two of those. I've got um, Tales from the Loop already. Um, so it, it looks really good, but that's I think that's... Like Tales from the Loop especially is based on someone's art book. So it's not really an IP per se, it's just like some pictures, and then it's... Um, that seems like a really good way of getting something where there's not an investment in what it actually means. It's just um, kind of like the flavour of what it might mean. or It's got inspiration and ideas, and then you can really do what you want with it at that point, can't you? Because you're not like, no one's going to tell you you're wrong. You're just taking what you can see and then doing something with it and telling your story about it, which leads more into the kind of role-playing and there's all having your own little uh, ideas in a head about what it all means. Mm. I mean, it's like, I mean, the one of the games of... Um... Of, of last Gen Con um, and probably get you know one of the games of this year is a game called Scythe um, yeah and that that came about because the game developer fell in love with uh, a guy called Jakobs um, can't remember his surname but his his artwork his portfolio this guy found it on ArtStation and just loved this kind of old master style painting that showed kind of fairly low tech peasant farmers looking at these massive um uh, futuristic kind of machines of war in the background um, and it really was just an art project for this guy who wanted to you know really examine the juxtaposition of like you know very old constable style paintings mixed with you know um, futuristic tech and this guy created a game fully inspired by the artwork and what you ended up with is a really cohesive product that, that, that really kind of embraces the, the look and feel of the world um, so in many ways I think he went down a similar process that you can and should go down with with other people's IPs. It's, there's no difference there. It's it's taking what inspires you when you see it, and 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 extracting 
mechanics and, and gameplay and fun out of out of what you see really. I think there's um there's probably another point on the financials as well, which is for board games or Kickstarters or when you're gonna ship whatever, half a million units or something, you can afford to get a license and spread that cost out per unit or you know, it depends on your licensing deal, I guess, if it's per unit or a, a set fee or whatever, but if you can ship a lot of product, then you can mitigate any upfront costs and that kind of stuff. Whereas for an RPG, you've really got to make sure it's successful, haven't you? Because margins are tight anyway, and if you're sticking on a license cost on top of that, then you've got a lot riding on that game, right? Mm. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, for an RPG, I mean, we've looked at, um, you know, a Guild Ball RPG, and quite honestly, the numbers don't stack up. They really don't, and that's coming from a position where we already have a bucket load of artwork. Um, I mean, a decent editor, a decent layout guy, you know, a graphic artist. Um, then you've got countless other um, kind of uh, art, art, you know, uh, creation uh, that you need to accommodate. Your cover art alone will probably cost you sort of three or four grand. You know, it just suddenly stacks up that you're investing. Thirty, forty thousand pounds into into you know uh, creating a new um, RPG. Well, you look at some of take Modifius's you know um, uh, Kickstars. What are they raising? Like 150, 200 grand. You know, um, you take thirty or forty thousand out of the profit of that. It's it's a hard business. It really is a hard business. And the issue with RPGs is is that really you know you are only ever selling the core book to to 100% of the people everything else that you bring out is is basically sold an attrition rate of your original core book you know you're selling you're, you're selling to a percentage of your customer base um so it it's a it's a tough tough business model when you look at it it really is so you wait for someone else to license it from you then right <laughs> Well, that, I mean, that's the, yeah, that's the other way to do it. But then, then what you you go down, you know, the route of what we we're talking about is like, you know, let's say we're chatting to Chris, and um, you know, if he wanted to do the Guild Ball um, RPG, um, which he's more than welcome to, by the way, Chris, um, is uh, he he would almost certainly want to use his um, his kind of core engine. He wouldn't want to use an engine that that felt like Guild Ball. He would want to use his his RPG engine. If we went, you know, back in the day to a D twenty production. Uh, company, they would probably want to. Uh, they would just use D twenty. You know, same for Savage Worlds. Mm. Everyone would just probably just wrap an engine onto it for for RPGs. I think RPGs are by far and away the hardest possible um, uh, products to to convert from an IP into a into a different into an RPG um, because the margins just aren't there to to allow you to really invest the time that's needed to kind of extract everything out of it. I mean, take. Take for example a movie coming up, um, Blade Runner. I mean, how much effort would you have to put in to to a Blade Runner RPG to get all of the tech right, all of the character classes right, all of the mm. character journeys right, enough adversaries to make this a coherent world? It's you know, it's it's not just all replicants. What else is in there? Who's happening? What factions there are? Like it, I, it just looks like months and months and months and months of work. How many people mm. are going to buy into a Blade Runner RPG? And that's that's one of the seminal sci-fi movies of our lifetime, you know. I don't think because it's a Blade Runner RPG that it would sell a hundred thousand copies. I don't even think it would sell, you know, twenty um, percent of that. Quite honestly, um, mm. I think unless it's got Star Wars written on it, it you, you know, you you really you are taking a bit of a gamble um, when it comes to to you know to IPs, certainly to RPGs. I think. <laughs> 
Yeah, but on the flip of that, I suppose it, it depends on the economies of scale, doesn't it? So you, if you get a big license like your Star Wars or your Star Trek, or if, if J.K. Rowling ever gives it up, the Harry Potter license, then you've got the economy of scale, which means you know you're going to do buku cash for that. You're going to sell a lot of units. But down the other end of it, where you've got like, you know, just a bit of a, a fan affection for, for maybe a license that most of us have never even heard of. I mean, the guys at Pinnacle who do Savage Worlds, they've done some licensed properties over the last year or so for, for properties I have never even heard of. And, and I consider myself pretty rounded as a geek, uh, but I genuinely have no idea about some of the stuff they're doing. And, and it looks like they're getting right behind it. But maybe then their expectation is they'll shift, you know, 1,000 copies at best. Um Gaz, you'd, you'd probably know a bit more about that than I would. You follow Pinnacle a bit more, I think, mate, without wanting to put you on the spot. But can you even remember the stuff I'm talking about? Yeah, they've about? got, like, is it Fear Agents and stuff like that? And they had Solomon Cain a few years back. And mm. there's, there's quite a bunch of other stuff that I just don't, I, like like you, have some of it, I just no idea about it. But it means something to someone. They've relaunched Rifts recently using Savage Wells, which is odd. Um, and, and I yes, think all these yeah, yeah. And, and kind of where it comes from and, and I think this is what happened with the One Ring actually is you get some guy who's really into it and that's where your Blade Runner RPG had come from is some guy who'd be just totally obsessed with Blade Runner has been watching it on repeat every day for 20 or 30 years or whatever it is uh, and they've put all the time and effort in and they, they turn up and say I want to produce this game uh, and they'll have all that stuff that you might take you know with, if you're starting from nowhere now to, to write it would take months but they've got it all so for agents or fear agents whatever it's called some guy obviously read all those comic books and just you know been writing all the stuff on it for ages so I think that's kind of where you have to get your your writing done from it's it's like fanboy stuff it's almost like the old days at GW where they get like young kids in, like me and you Baz when we were be managers for a couple of years till we burn mm. out just like <laughs> spending all their money on toy soldiers and you know occasionally some feed and then when you've had enough of that and go like well this isn't a career they sort of get ready and get the next next lot of kids in and I think for your licensed product for RPGs and, and maybe where some of this stuff is coming from Pinnacle because they get pictures all the time is people who are dead interested in a thing a niche whatever it is and then they just turn up and go I've got you know this 400,000 words written for this stuff can I produce a book and then they get an editor involved to, to trim it down maybe or something like that but it, I think it really all comes down to labours of love and people that are just into it anyway and willing to spend hours and nights after work just to get it you know get something out there and get it done I would guess I would say I don't know I think half the half the problem as well. I mean, no, actually, I just made that number up. I think a good a good thing to think about would be uh, consumer expectation as well. I mean, I don't know how many RPGs I've picked up over the years and thought this is about three hundred pages too heavy, you know, and it's a three hundred fifty page book, and you're like, but if it was a fifty page book, I probably wouldn't have bought it, even though I'm never going to read this three hundred pages, you know. So, mm-hmm. and I think that creates a massive barrier for entry. I mean. Um, you know, what, oh, my mind has gone blank. Um, what's that recent example? The um, futuristic world where you're in the ninth age and you're searching around. Numenera. Numenera. How many pages are there? Like 700 pages or something? Do me a favour. <laughs> like, honestly, it doesn't need to be that big. I'm never going to read all this of that. The curse of Kickstarters, you know, I'm afraid, is that you get bonus content as you get stretch goals. So you end up with a book a book that was 128 pages at 256 and it ends up twice or three times the size. Crazy. Right. And, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't know. We're, I think um, one of the things we, you know, we, we work very diligently to be fully aware of at, at Steamforged is, um, is you're competing for people's time. You're not competing for their dollars anymore. 
what you really want is is the precious recreational hours that people are going to invest in in their hobby and um and that is what you you're kind of going after and so for me when you come up with a role playing book that's like 400 pages and it's going to take me god knows how many days to actually just read the thing i think you're starting so far behind the line already um that you you are you're actually better off and um again like chris isn't sponsoring me but i know modifius do these really awesome quick start rules <laughs> that get you in with an adventure and you get you off and going and and you know you for me that that's a perfect gateway into do i now want to invest in this game does my role-playing group actually like this product do i like this the idea of reading you know um huge amounts of backstory and writing a load of stuff for it um so i think i think there's a degree of um pressure on um you know on creating a bucket load of content which just exacerbates the problem in terms of making the business model work that you you end up with the more stuff you do the lower quality is going to be because your quality control just gets stretched so you know i would i would personally rather see people do smaller tighter products that are of higher quality now that for me is why um do you remember sort of 10 years back when the indie revolution really popped that's actually what people were doing was they were taking a much smaller is almost like a like a euro style game but applying it to rpgs where they'll take a very simple central mechanic or idea and then they would just layer and layer and layer on top of that central idea they wouldn't try and create games that that kind of told all the stories they just focused on games that told a story so like don't rest your head was just about you know the reasons why you couldn't sleep yeah. you know um the the primetime tv um or was it primetime adventures like- was just about yeah like the mechanic that allowed you to create a tv show with your mates and then act out kind of key bits of it and felt like you were an actor in a tv show it didn't try and give you stats and and you know adversaries and this that and the other it just kind of left those deliberately blank um and i think that's why you you know you we're now looking at um amazing kind of hacks of things like uh, dungeon world and apocalypse world that are probably for me the more exciting um i uh, rpg ip products that are coming out there whether they're official or unofficial i couldn't tell you but um i i kind of like the fact that they're latching onto these much simpler engines and getting the core tenant of the ip out so you play like um I don't know, um, like a Shadowrun kind of hack of Apocalypse World or Blades in the Dark, you've actually got the core essence of what Shadowrun is. Now I know Shadowrun's already an RPG, <laughs> but it's it, it you get you get the example, right? It's it's kind of what is core to Shadowrun is that kind of feeling of of um, of planning an event, uh, planning a mission, but. I, I mean, we've probably all played Shadowrun, right? Have you ever played in a Shadowrun game where you've overplanned, and when it actually comes to the mission, it's quite it's dull as dishwater because you covered every bloody angle and they've got everything they possibly need. Unless you're going to pull a GM Fiat on them and completely yank the rug from under their under their feet, the mission just goes off without a hitch. But what you go, you look at like a system like Blades in the Dark, and it has that kind of what. Well, scrub past all that planning just dive in let's assume you have done the planning and we'll find out how the planning went in media res like actually in the action and that that captures the essence of what a Shadowrun novel does for me you know you don't read a Shadowrun novel and it's you know 250 pages of boring legwork and then 20 pages of the run it's 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 more about the run and what goes wrong and how they get stitched up and 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 that kind of character interaction that happens but yeah, it wants to be a bit more like a, a James Bond adventure or something, where perhaps you get shown a couple of gadgets up front, but you don't find out how they're going to use them until they're actually on the mission. And then he pulls out to have just the right thing he needs for that 
moment in time, you know. Oh, that's why you need money molecular wire in yeah. your watch or whatever. Like, glad we found that out. But you don't, you don't like, you don't get an explanation as to why he's carrying it with him. The different reasons why he might use it. He just turns up at the time, and it's more interesting. Because I've, I've tried to read the Shadowrun book, and then that's another one that's like the size of a telephone directory. It must be like five or six hundred pages long, and I fell asleep more than once trying to just read the basics of it. Couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, we we called Shadowrun the like um, it was the knockout <laughs> book because you'd lie in bed trying to read it. And it yeah, you don't have to fall on you. That'd be it. You'd be out. <laughs> yeah. You can get in touch with the Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty@hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions, and revelations are always welcome. Roll diplomacy. But I think this is um I think this 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 really comes back to licenses as well. So if you were going to get a licensed game, if you were in the market for buying one um as a punter, I think you'd feel a bit shortchanged if you didn't get a big fat glossy book that was full of art, full of all the IP because when you buy the license, you buy the whole license. So why would you only use a tiny portion of it? So, you know, on on your example, guys, if you were going to do the James Bond RPG and I appreciate one has been done in the past, but I don't think there's one like currently out there. Um you wouldn't want it to be four pages of Powered by the Apocalypse rules and two playbooks and, and a couple of, like, there's your missions. You don't want that. You're going to want all the gadgets, all the Bond girls, all the cars, all the locations. That's that's kind of one of the things you get. I, I, I'm struggling to see a, a licensed game that could get away with it. And and then further to your point on, on those great big fat books... I'm starting to think that like second, third, or fourth editions of games are almost like the license of the previous <laughs> game, and that they can yeah. only get bigger because every everybody wants what was in the original source material plus something extra for their table, and that's why the current edition of Shadowrun could kill you if you're not careful because it's going to fall on your face because it's like Shadowrun Fifth Edition bought the license <laughs> to first to fourth. And then, and people don't do slim down licenses, do they? It's yeah, it's a really good point, Baz. It's um, it's almost like they. I mean, f- for me, one of the core tenets of good design is when you can no longer take anything out, then then something's done. Because it's yeah. really easy. Like you know, the game that I was um, I was uh, working on last week when I was over in the states um, with one of our developers, we just wanged a load of stuff in. Like the feature list was through the roof. The hardest mm. thing is saying. What does that mechanic actually do? And it's like, you know, you know, dude, that's such a good mechanic, but how does it actually add to the whole? It, it doesn't. So let's stick a pin in it, keep it for another game, keep it as a great idea, but it doesn't make the cut for this particular game. And you and you cut, you cut, you cut, you cut until what you have is a is a lean, mean fighting machine. And it's it's such an interesting point that you have never thought of it like that. That um, that yeah you you have you almost like in an arms race with yourself with the previous edition mm-hmm. i it'd be yeah. a really brave company to come out and say but i mean they tried it with shadowrun anarchy didn't they to a certain degree that, yes. but that, even then yes. it was a bit of a a bit of a rinky dink where they kind of went well this is a bit more of a storyteller version but here's the core real mm-hmm. version if you want to play mm-hmm. the man's version right and it's like actually mm-hmm. i wish you'd kind of gone further down that route but brought some of the crunch with you and ended up with a stripped down, lean and mean version of Shadowrun that makes me feel like I'm playing Shadowrun back in the day. Um, Correct. Yeah, that's interesting. Good point. I mean, even even D and D, my beloved D and D, which Fifth uh, Edition is a bit of a hit. I think it's fair to say. D and D Basic is a thing, um, but it's it's free and it's on the web. 
I'm, I'm feeling like sometimes I'm the only person who looks at it and goes, since when is 248 pages of anything basic? It's, it's, it's not, it's the full experience, which is great from levels one to 20 with four classes and four races. That's a fully fledged role playing game. It just is. The old basic that I remember was 64 pages long, was still a fully fledged role playing game. Well, that only went up to level three or so. Not be funny, but, but it, how do you, it, it was different rules. How do you, it was different rules. How do you pad out four races, four classes to two hundred odd pages? By putting in every single rule. There's a lot of filler. It, it's absolutely, you know, it's it's not that far off because it's art free and all the rest of it. It's not that far off the full product that you buy. It's it's a slightly stripped back version with fewer options, but in no way is it basic. Uh, I, I think it's a, a bad name for it, and obviously it's a it's a name that's got a lot of cachet. But it's, games designers find it very, very difficult to reiterate to a smaller degree. And I think anyone who takes on a license, um, I mean, one of my favorite licenses of recent years is, was, uh, was Marvel Heroic, which was done with the Cortex system. That was one of the, I mean, there's a license that, that's, that's been in and out like a fiddler's elbow. I mean, there must have been six or seven different goes at that. And none of them have lasted particularly long, apart from maybe the TSR one back in the 80s. But at least the Marvel game that the Cortex one tried to do was relatively slender. Um, and, and I mean relatively. But it still had to include like 300 superheroes because otherwise it's not really a licensed <laughs> game anymore, is it? It's just, this well, is, it's just a super game. And if you're going to get the license to Marvel, why wouldn't you put in Spider-Man, all the Avengers, all the X-Men, etc.? You, you couldn't not put well, them you in. Need them all you need them all into the... I don't know. It depends how... I just want geeks to argue about whether the stats are right or not. You need them all in for that, don't you? Clearly, so they can play top trump it's, for them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's take a step further. Like, Actually, as, as I mean, you guys have all run games. Would, would you ever put Spider-Man in a game that you were running? Like, ha- no. It's like, it's like bloody... Um, Elminster turning up in a Forgotten Realms game. Like, where would that... Like, I don't know. I've run a lot of Forgotten Realms and I've never once considered someone like Elminster or one of the big, like, Dritz or someone like that turning up. Because I just think it would it would instantly ruin the game for the players because they would no longer be <laughs> well, the, the big cheeses on the block at that point in time. This, this is the thing, Matt. This is what might drive you to distraction, I think, because you like being the star in the show. But when you play Marvel Heroic... The default is you play one of the Marvel heroes. Oh, there's a bit of character generation system in there, but you know it's a vestige at best. You are picking. Uh, well, if you're Julian, you're picking Wolverine. If you're me, you're picking Black Widow. If you're if you're Pete, you're picking Captain America. That's they're all there. You, who, who you would just I choose pick? a hero. Who would I pick? You, yeah, Howard the Duck. I don't know. <laughs> what, what are you going to go with? <laughs> it's almost certainly going to be Dwarven and not Groot. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Well, I think there's the rock... Guardians of the Galaxy. There are that's the people who want that kind of stuff, though, aren't there? I mean, I, I probably with you guys, I find it a bit bizarre. I'd much rather have my own stories than you know watch somebody else with theirs or be forced into trying to emulate Spider-Man or something. But um, certainly, the One Ring, which I mentioned earlier, in that there's bits of the adventures where um, they've sort of written like, oh, and you know, and if the party are really lucky while they're stopping over in this place, they might get a, you know a glimpse of Radagast the Brown or something, and exclamation marks everywhere. And you can oh, see nice. that the guy who's written it's obviously like got a massive hard on for this kind of stuff. And if his adventuring party got to like, you know, write a note to Gandalf <laughs> once, they'd all be super excited. But for, for me, it's like, why are we? Why are we playing role-playing <laughs> games if that's what you're getting out of it? You know, just watch the trilogy on TV or something, read the book. God, God damn it. But, you know. Which which actually, guys, takes me back to an argument I think we've been having since the 90s. Well, I don't think we disagree with each other, which is 
isn't the curse of the licensed game that you have to hold it up against its source material. Say, for example, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Do you want to play the RPG all evening, or are you getting more fun by watching two episodes back-to-back, which would take you half the time, and isn't it twice the fun? That's always got to be the, the yardstick that you hold a licensed game to, is is it more fun or different fun to just going back to the source and doing that for your giggles? So, I don't know, is Battlestar Galactica the board game better than watching Battlestar Galactica? <laughs> I mean, I'd say no, but <laughs> that's probably due to the experience that I had rather than the game itself. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, for me, like as I said earlier, like RPGs, board games. For me, it's um, it's getting together with people that you enjoy spending time with. is the most important thing, and it almost mm. doesn't matter. Like between you and me, I'm not the biggest fan of the Pathfinder card game, <laughs> and the fact that we mm. played it for 11 weeks in a row was a was a testament to my sta- like to my stamina because I <laughs> it, it was all right. It was kind of like, well, let's just all pull our dice and and roll a load of dice and then we win. Yay! But it was more coming to hang out with you guys that I look forward to yeah. rather than the actual game itself. So my answer would always, always be I will play even a bad game with my mates and enjoy that far more than watching a TV show on my own. Well, that's fair, mate, because, you know, to go really meta, uh, the Pathfinder card game is kind of licensed off the Pathfinder game and I prefer the cards <laughs> to the real thing. So hooray for me. Do you? What? God, yes. Absolutely. Every time. <laughs> but that's another podcast. You don't like Pathfinder? <laughs> Not particularly. Do you know, Not really. Do you know I've run numerous Pathfinder, um, uh, what they call campaign books or campaign threads or whatever they are. Adventure paths. Adventure yeah. paths. Never once used Pathfinder <laughs> as an engine. There you go. There you go. I've I've run one for you. We didn't use Pathfinder. There you go. For a couple of sessions. Fate, fate, no. fate is your friend. <laughs> you can just take anything and run it with fate. There you go. That's what you should do if you want to do a decent license. Just write a fate book. I think you're rude. The, yeah, the Dresden Files was a brilliant um, conversion. That's a, actually that's a really really good example of someone who took a, a great IP and inherited a lot of like what was important about Dresden Files and, and got that into the RPG. I mean that felt like a real labour of love, um, and it, and it's just at every level of that product was that an amazing RP, role playing game, um, even down to the fact that you had characters from the book writing notes in the in the side uh, of the pages to act as your hint text but it was actually in character mm. in the world um yeah no that was a phenomenal game in terms of you know production values and and yeah if only they could all be like that but that's the fate engine for you i love it <laughs> so i think this reinforces what i was saying there doesn't it really that it's got to be someone's labor of love that's where these things come from if it's a licensed product it's somebody who knows it and gets it and is really trying hard to give other people that that thing that they want themselves out of the game. Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, you know, the dark side of that is that um, they will also do that labour for not a lot of yeah. money as well. Mm. Pe- you know, pennies on the word is is not a good way of earning a living. But uh, it doesn't matter if you're doing something that you're passionate about and you would do anyway. The fact that you get a couple mm. hundred quid in your pocket is is just brilliant. More importantly, to people who write that content, is their name yeah. and credit. And forever being linked with it. That's that's what gives those that you know that, that kind of person a kick. And look, more power to them. I mean, I I get a massive buzz out of sitting there just writing stuff. I'm lucky enough to be able to translate some of it into actual products now. Um, but I, even if I didn't have Steamforge, I'd still be writing games and making hacks up and and doing stuff because it's fun. And you know, that's the main reason why people should do oh, it. God, I think. Yeah. There's that that old adage about how do you make a small fortune in role playing? You start with a large fortune. 
<laughs> yeah. Foot, foot, football clubs and role-playing games, right? <laughs> so I want to uh, quickly ask you about Kickstarters and what you think about them as well, because I can see um, that... I don't know whether there's enough uh, enough knowledge about them. I think that the trouble is for a lot of them, certainly for RPG companies, which could be just like some guy in his shed or maybe him and his dog, um, is that you, you kind of get involved in something that's a bit a bit too much. Are they, are they good or ill Kickstarters? Because in terms of... If you look at Chaosin, for example, they did the Cthulhu one, and that is an example of a, a book where it was a you know version seven, which was the you know, licensed version of one to six, where they did slim it down, but then due to Kickstarter, it got really big, and then just the the whole fulfillment and all the extra bits and the shipping and everything, and it all created this perfect storm where it actually cost them money to send products to people in the end, that kind of thing. Uh, and can it get people in danger as well? You know, if you're if you're a one man band and you try and do a Kickstarter and offer too much, I don't know what what's your sort of experience around that sort of thing. Is it? What do you think about? I don't know, maybe Pinnacle or established companies using Kickstarter when they've got money in the bank, or do they not? Is that why they're going to Kickstarter? Do you think? Guys, a lot of questions rolled into one. So, full disclosure, um, Steamforge has a really really public opinion on Kickstarter, which is we believe it's a really viable platform. To, to launch something once but keep going back to the same well we're not down with at all so you know uh, we launched Guild Ball via Kickstarter Guild Ball now survives on its own Steam um, we wouldn't go back to the well with another Guild Ball Kickstarter ever um, and that's just because philosophically we believe in allowing the platform to to enable people to do what we've done which is start with a couple of quid and an idea and, and, and you know through hard work and good luck and, and, and a great idea, we, we've ended up with a, you know, a fully-fledged games company. That That's kind of you know the dream path, um, and we feel blessed to, to be walking along it. But um, I think you, know, you can look at some companies and wonder why they are constantly using Kickstarter. Now, you look at Steamforge, and we've done you know, wild success with Gilball. Obviously, Dark Souls kind of rewrote the records um, at the time. Um, silly amounts of money on, on Dark Souls. Um, but are we going to use Kickstarter again? We are. The reason is, is Kickstarter has evolved over the last few years um, into being a much more powerful marketing platform than it is actually a fundraiser. Um, you really, really don't. And this is why when you look at, say, a board game who has like a like a 50 grand kind of um, funding number, it costs more than that to make a game that's got, you know, um, 50 odd miniatures in it. Um, the moulding costs alone are going to cost you that much money, not to mention the artwork and all that kind of jazz. It's just an arbitrary number to, that, that will enable that game to fund within the first 24 hours. So you can get a sticker on it that says funded within 24 hours because success yeah. breeds success and people are attracted to the to the idea that the project's now funded. And what you've actually got is a very savvy Kickstarter community who actually can look at a project now and they can very quickly extrapolate whether they think this is a project worth backing or not. You know, they can look at the initial kind of backing rate. They can then work out how many people are likely to back it, at what average, um, at what average spend, and then they'll tell you how much this is going to get and what stretch goals you're likely to get out of it, and therefore what the value is in the original pledge. They're very, very clever. Um, and as companies, we have to think along the same sort of lines in terms of the way we do our maths and the way we build out our stretch goals because it isn't an infinite pot. You know, Dark Souls was almost a victim of its own success in so far as. Um, the original pledge of I can't remember what it was, a hundred quid, say. You know, there is there is a maximum there is a maximum amount of money that we can actually put into that box and still be able to keep the yeah. doors open at a hundred quid per person. And it doesn't matter that we made six million dollars; 
it, we, what we actually made was 40,000 times this yeah. 100 quid, right? And if that, if, if, that, if that 100 quid didn't make us any money, or in fact, worse, cost us a couple of quid, then we'll be 40, 80, 120 grand in the hole for every pound that we got it wrong. And I think this is what goes back to what you were saying is, is you know, it's, it's very easy to forget um, key aspects of, of a production, especially if you've never done it before. So if you're a brand new guy um, to the industry, you just don't understand everything that can go wrong or unforeseen costs or delays in shipping or how customs can screw you over and how fulfillment is an actual pain in the balls. Like, you just don't get any of these things before you start and you only discover with the luxury of time. And because the margins, however good they are on Kickstarter, because you're cutting out the distributor, you're cutting out the retailer, that's only two slices of the pie. The other slice is your manufacturing costs. The other slice is your development costs. So you've actually only got a couple of slices to mess about with. If you get it slightly wrong, you're mm. in the hole, you know, by a long way. So um, I'm quite lucky that I spent the last 20 years um, as a project manager. So I fully understand the concept of contingency and proper project planning and, and, and understanding what may or may not happen and, and basically accounting for it. But, you know, even with Dark Souls, um, Brexit came along and, and, and single-handedly overnight wiped 500 grand off of uh, off wow. of our books, right? Right, so, and that was unforeseen. Like, no one would vote for us to leave Europe. You've got to be insane, have you? Oh, okay, apparently we have. Cheers for that, guys. Wish I'd bought some euros yesterday, you know. So, st- so stuff happens. So, uh, I think, I think if if... The trouble is, is like um, where there's where there's money to be made, there will always be a full spectrum of people who use that, and the the largest part of the bell curve will be perfectly decent people with perfectly decent intentions, and some will kind of get it wrong and they'll be on the downslope, and some will kind of get it right and they'll be on the upslope, and then you'll be the guys who know exactly how to use it and milk it. They'll be the guys on the furthest upslope. and you'll be the guys who who are just out to kind of rip you off or or they just really shouldn't be allowed out of the house in the morning and and they'll be the other end of the, the bell curve but in the main most people who go on kickstarter go on with really good intentions to make a product that they firmly believe in and i i 100 percent endorse there being platforms available for people to be able to do that because i think without that we would probably still be playing things like d20 yeah because it, you look at video game land right it's sequel after sequel after sequel and publishers are scared you know um uh, to death of of heavily investing in a, in a brand new IP because here's the thing with 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 video gamers is they're like oh I'm sick of like FIFA 2017 and you know uh, Gears of War 74 and blah 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 like oh why can't you give us something new okay well here's something new yeah no we, we're just going to buy you know Gears of War because we already know how to play that you know so what people say they want and what they actually demonstrate that they want by actually how they spend their money are generally two different things um so uh, you know I, I i kind of i really want kickstarter to be around for people who have amazing ideas who don't necessarily have the backing or the contacts or the wherewithal to kind of do it without generating a community generating some interest generating some initial money for them to actually then get their their dream off the ground um it's i, I just think i think i, I do have a very low opinion of, of people who keep going back to the well one to um, just keep milking the same thing um, and I'll talk about that in a second actually because that's crimes against our our entire um, hobby wow. for me um, well I mean 
if you if you look at the way um, a product works, okay, you know, um, there's 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 basically slices of the pie. So slice number one is the actual cost it is to make the physical thing that you're selling. So let's say we got a, a game which was Acme Games, right? Uh, Acme, Acme Game number one. It costs us X number of pounds to make it, right? And then we, and then the the, the the manufacturer then needs to sell it to the distributor and make a slice of money on it, right? So it's generally the same amount as what the dev cost is. So let's say it costs ten pound to make a product, right? You then sell it for for twenty pounds, so you can make ten pound profit, all right? You're selling that to a distributor who generally wants it for fifty percent off of the RRP, so he can then sell it at twenty, uh, sorry, at twenty five percent off RRP to the retailer. So the next slice is the distributor. And then the next slice after that is the retailer, and then you've got basically one slice left, which is um, generally distribute, you know, which is kind of spread around. That's if you hit the standard five x kind of business model. So there's not a lot of room to kind of wriggle about in that. Now, if you as a manufacturer cut out the distributor and the retailer, right, and you go straight to the customer, that's great because you actually get two additional slices of the pie that you really, ordin- you know, ordinarily you wouldn't get access to. But what actually happens is, is this customer has now bought a game, and this is really prevalent in the States, not necessarily so much over here in the UK, where we tend to play in clubs and uh, at people's houses. In the States, it's all about community in the local store. So what you get is people going into the local store with their copy of, look, Seymour are big enough, Zombicide. They go in with Zombicide, and they bought, they back the Zombicide uh, Kickstarter. They've got 15,000 tons of plastic, and they now want someone to play the game. So they go into a store where they haven't spent a single penny on this product, but they want gaming space. They want lights on, they want tables, they want people to be around and play the game. They want a guy behind the cash register to be running the show so they can play this game that they haven't actually bought in this particular shop. You know, it's it's no different from going into a, uh, your local game store and looking at a game and going, I really like the look of that. I'll quickly check Amazon. All right, I'll, hit, I'll grab that off Amazon, yeah. right? That poor guy is like, that's not... That's his livelihood, it's his hobby, it's his love, it's his passion. He's not doing it for the money, trust me. There is no money in role-playing game stores, right? Or, or board game stores, or game stores, right? He is doing that because that is his love of his life. And he really wants to build this community up. So if you keep going to Kickstarter and cutting these guys out, what's going to happen? These stores are going to shut down, these distributors are going to go away. And what you end up with then is, is no access for people to discover the hobby. So you'll end up with an ever-diminishing uh, pool of people who are playing games because people will go away. We we have real lives. We have wives coming along, girlfriends, like kids, dogs, you know, jobs. Every, loads of, life just throws a series of hurdles that stops, you know, um, people from playing games, right? Um, it's only tenacious buggers like us who kind of keep ignoring all of that rubbish <laughs> and, and keep playing. God bless us. But, um, but God bless us. But... But you've kind of got this situation where if you're not onboarding new people into the hobby to keep the the pool growing and, and new people coming in, then then you've got a diminishing um, customer pool, which means that um, it's much harder for you as a business to, to make products that are actually going to get a return on your original investment. So as a manufacturer, you stop making games and it's, it's a downward spiral at that point in time. So I believe really passionately that, that Kickstarter is absolutely a viable way for you to get a great idea off the ground but I think that companies have to have to have to use Kickstarter in a way that's ethically sensible for the long term and that is using Kickstarter that's the benefit for not not only the end user but the manufacturer but also the retailers as well and it's certainly something that we try to do with with Dark Souls which is 
uh, we had retailer only exclusive pledges uh, and we had retailer exclusive unlocks so whilst the Kickstarter was being successful we were unlocking products that you could only ever buy in the store mm. right so that meant that the retailers knew that we weren't actually trying to take those two slices away from them we were actually creating a product that would have a high demand in their stores and, and make people come into their stores and that's actually something that I was chatting to David Peretti about who's the MD at Simon. And he said that he saw us doing that and, and has copied us. He said, it's a great idea. We're going to do the same thing. Now, for me, that's one of the greatest achievements of last year for, for Steamforge was the fact that we, we were able to do something that people noticed and saw was a good idea. And they, they believe that it's a good idea, so much so that they're starting to do a similar thing. And that, that for me, is, is how we have a responsibility to kind of pay forward, I think, and, and, and hopefully get more and more people into playing games because board games is going through a resurgence role-playing games is going through you know a massive growth period there's more and more people getting involved we just need to make sure that it's a it's it's a it's a great place for people to come and stay and play because then we get to go to like baz and i going to a you know a, a chelmsford role-playing um group that sprung out of nowhere over the last couple of months right yeah. and there's a hundred odd people yeah. You know, these things kind of happen, and I think it's cool. I'm looking forward to going there and meeting a whole bunch of new people. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of again slightly ranting, and I apologise for that. But I, I just believe so passionately <laughs> that that you it, don't steal a pound now to rob yourself of ten pound later on. It's just that's just lunacy. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we only ever get one scene in our Wednesday night games because someone says distribution and Matt loses his mind for an hour. And you only talk about how to split the gold pieces, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's no such thing as high treasure. It is not a thing. <laughs> Anyone who says that is a liberal. <laughs> or an elf. Always an elf. Always the elf. Are we going to split that? No, we're not. <laughs> it's mine. I found okay, it. Okay, so um, so what's next then? What's the next big thing, Matt? So because uh, you'll know, and, we, and me and guys don't have a clue, mm. and that's why we're penniless, and uh, we have to we have to do podcasting for our own amusement, alone <laughs> in the night with nothing. Um, what's next? What's next? Um, is what are the what are the big licenses, or even the most interesting licenses that, for one reason or another, have not been snapped up? Is uh, who's missing a trick here? I've, there's always a couple that everybody's got where. Well, you think you might be the only customer of it, but there, there's some stuff I would love to see, and I would throw my money at it. What have you got on your on your hit list? What we got on my hit list? So it's a thinly um, disguised secret that we're working with. Um, we're working on a code name project called Trash Panda Metropolis, um, which is soon to be confirmed. Um, <laughs> That better be about pandas, because kung fu pandas on my list. <laughs> I think I think the the I think the, the the best answer to your question is is one that's slightly abstract. I think the best licensed games are going to be the ones that weren't immediately obvious, and I think Dark Souls right. fits into that. The when it's what the one where you sure. smack your head after it's happened and go, well, of course that was going to be amazing. Right, of course that was going to be hugely mm. popular. Look at the synergies between people who are into a dark kind of medieval fantasy kind of hack and slash, uh, you know, kind of video game, and that translated into a, what a, a dark medieval fantasy kind of explorer game. Yeah, of course that was going to always work. And I think it's it's looking at those kinds of IPs that, that are definitely going to work. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of stuff out. We talked about, for example, Blade Runner earlier. I would love to mm. do the Blade Runner IP, 
because I love the Blade Runner IP, but can I work out how I would do a game that captured everything about it in a in a in a like in a contained unit that, that you could play in sixty a night minute ninety minutes? I don't know, dude. Like, I and and until until I have a great idea, you know, I, I we we're not going to go after it. Um, uh, but there are other ideas that I think. You know that I have had for things that are, are probably slightly more left field <coughs> that I think could resonate really well that could be really really popular, um, and I think that for me is is the thing that we're trying to pursue is 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 find an IP that just um, has that really strong recognition but also allows you to create a really good game, and I think that that's kind of the secret to success, um, long term success, and that's certainly what we're going after. So. We're we're in talks mm. with a whole bunch of people about a whole bunch of kind of you know uh, really exciting ideas right now. I mean, who knew? Like the popularity of, of Dark Souls has kind of opened a fair number of doors for us, and people are, are, are very willing to at least talk to us, which is half the battle. Mm. To be honest with you, the next half is is coming up with great ideas um, and and selling them to to people and, and getting them excited about them. So um, mm. yeah, I, I think it looks slightly left of center is 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 where the next big thing's going to come from. Guys, what you got on your list, mate? There's always um, there's always something um, on your list. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's, like I said, if I knew what it was, I'd do it. <laughs> uh, I I kind of want it to be a good science fiction game still for role playing, if you know what I mean. And I'm not sure there is. Like I'm looking through Coriolis now, mm-hmm. but I'm not. Like it's got some ideas, but I'm still don't. I don't feel it. It's perhaps because it's too broad a subject or something. Like you know, obviously, Modifius have got the Star Trek license now, and there's been a Serenity kind of. Firefly type thing that used Cortex Plus and all the rest of it, but I think I'd like to see what I want to see more of is more games that try and do something that the source material does. And I don't think we see that. I think because of the, all the reasons we've just discussed over the last hour or so, you know, there's the if a games company is going to do it, they're doing mm. it because they've already got the system. They don't have to do that bit, uh, and they just add some other extra stuff on top of it. But I'd really like to see games that address or play the way that the source material is. And have some interesting mechanics like that, but I'm not sure who, who will write it or what they'll do. Um, like I've just watched uh, Black Sails, for example, like the last season of that, which is like a big parody thing, right? Um, and it just looks and feels really good. I mean, it's a bit cheesy, and you know, the last series goes completely off the rails in terms of believability and all the rest of it, but it's got a really good feel to it. And you watch a couple of episodes of that and think, I want a flintlock in my hand. And I want you know I want everything to be a bit grubby and dirty, and I want there to be mm. a political battle over who's going to rule Nassau. But I don't I don't see that game yet. But I do I could give you like ten pirate RPGs off my shelf, which will tell you how much damage a cannonball does. But I don't want that, you know. And I think that's the that's where I'm struggling. Yeah. I can see lots of IPs where I think that's good. I just don't know how they translate into the things that are good about it that Matt was talking earlier. Get, getting the essence of it and putting that in a game. That's what I'm I'm missing. I think with a lot of products. What have you got on your list then? Have you got some stuff that you want to turn out to a game? Well, there's, there's stuff that's been tried before and I don't think has ever been gotten right. So uh, for me, that would be Marvel Superheroes, which I mentioned earlier for Cortex, which was which was a really, really good shot at it. Um, but, you know, that, that license dried up really, really fast for them, unfortunately, the guys at Margaret Vice Productions. I, I don't think they had it for very long at all. I managed to getting very very fast and buy a couple of books and then it's impossible to get even now it's, it's very difficult to pick up that stuff so that was kind of stillborn um and and in a similar way actually going back to sort of like all of our histories really 
there's um, there's the king of licenses in the UK has got to be the Games mm. Workshop stuff, which has been, you know, back when you and I worked for them, Gaz, and, and Matt, I think, for that matter, they would not license mm. anything to anybody because they were just really scared that there was going to be someone making Space Marine <laughs> luncheon meat. And, and, which you can get in North Korea. <laughs> yeah. And Eldar beach towels. Which they would genuinely fight that because you know one of the things about you know giving up the license is you you have to give up the license you have to let other people do stuff with it and 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 they they hung on to that very tight but then again in recent years they let that go out to people like FFG who made game after game after game about every aspect of the forty k universe um, and uh, we were you know we were kind of around right at the start mm-hmm. of that weren't we guys we were looking at dark heresy and and that and you know some of that stuff got ripped out really fast as well so. There's a whole bunch of stuff where I think that we could do with another run-up at it, and we'll probably get that for the rest of my life. There'll be people doing that. And then, you know, I'm still waiting for someone to do the Asterix and Obelix RPG, and I think I'll probably <laughs> wait in a long time. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe right. I'll have to do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's other stuff that I think the industry would really love to see. I, I mentioned it in passing. There is no Harry Potter That's RPG. True. Um, mm. And it seems tailor-made. But J.K. Rowling is famously not going to let that happen uh, for whatever her reasons are but but you know that's the game that that could really really get kids interested in playing wizards and you know not that they need much in the way of a push but that could open the so story. how would you go about that one though that's that's a fascinating question because you know you've got like the adult fans and you've mm-hmm. also got the kids so who do you pitch yep. that product at you, you you do honestly, Matt. The, I'm gonna, it's a trite answer, but you do what Games Workshop always did really well, which is you make an adult game that kids can play, or you make a kids game that adults can play. You know what's 40k pitched at? Really, it's it's there's I don't I don't think there is any such thing because the, the essence of Harry Potter is that they're kids books that adults like. So you know do, who does she pitch them at? She pitched them at kids, but she wrote it in a way that adults could absolutely dig it. And I think it would be the same thing, but maybe in reverse, because RPGs are going to be bought by parents these days for their kids, because we're of that generation. Um, but, you know, D&D Basic, to go back to my previous example, is not something I want to print out and give to my 10-year-old son, because it's not it's not what he needs. But I would dig a Harry Potter box set with a couple of dice in it and some nicely done character sheets and pick your house first. And he would dig that more than more than I can imagine. Um I think it could absolutely be done, mate. I think, you know, and the rules are largely written, aren't they, about how to be a wizard? Because like Gaz says, he could reach to his back shelf now and pick up 20 books and tell you how to cast a spell. That bit's done. So it can't be beyond the will of people or the skill of people to put that together in a package. I think it's more packaging than anything else. Um, and, and who wouldn't do it? But but JK won't let it happen. That's a shame. She won't. Although there's a, mi- there's a minis game, isn't there? There might be. I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, I didn't know. Is yeah, there Harry Potter minis game? And, well, how does that work? Because that's that's a game where I don't know where you would pitch that. At. War gamers, I, I guess. I'll tell you what. I'm not going to sit there and paint wizards from Hogwarts. <laughs> Blimey, there's not much you won't paint. So that's a damning indictment. I've got too many space marines to paint. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, the, yeah. the way to do it would be, you know, she was derivative and got her stuff from other people. So go and get the books of magic and other comics and stuff that she ripped all her stuff off from, and uh, make a game uh, of that instead, and call it yeah. Harry Potter or something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Harry Potter. If you did do something like that, you could. The way to pitch it, I think, would be to do the the, the quick start 
or the, you know the, the free giveaway or the cheap one you do you earn that as kids and keep that simple and then you have the proper book in inverted commas mm. for people who've got a job or money uh, with more involved rules and more stuff you can do if you wanted to do that kind of stuff and that's probably the way to approach it that you get your free mm. RPG days and all the rest of it and you go mm. you know you give someone an hour at a really simple adventure with I don't, I don't know I've not read Harry Potter so I can't tell you but some uh, squiggles gone missing in the library or something and like you know a really basic adventure that kids can do and then once they say <laughs> I like it that's when the shopkeeper swoops and goes do you know I've got this lovely limited edition hardback embossed cover from Hogwarts or whatever that's how I do anyway you've got to rescue squiggle <laughs> <laughs> is that not I'm sure I read that in a book somewhere or something there's an adventure that just writes itself that sounds like something from RuneQuest circa 1982 that was quite successful Right. Well, RuneQuest had done quick oh, start. Good old right? RuneQuest. Oh, well, it, it has licensed itself a couple of times, hasn't it? Yeah, it so only took it that. My abiding memory of RuneQuest was climbing trees at the end of sessions and orating from the, from the uppermost branches. <laughs> to get your skill checks. <laughs> <laughs> get your skill checks in, Nick. <laughs> I'm going to orate to the peasants from the top of this and tree. And does anybody want a sandwich while I'm up here? Because I'm cooking. <laughs> As you get back to Purvis, we're going to ride on a horse and then jump off the horse in the cluster. <laughs> yeah. And make sure you headbutt something. Here. Oh, those were the days. Those were the days. That was back when games were games. <laughs> All right. Good, good old percentile systems. Well, if we've gotten into reminiscing about 1982 percentile systems, we've probably squeezed the joy out of this podcast. So, uh, right, okay. Is there anything else from anybody else or should we continue this discussion over a couple of pints next time? I think we should do that. I think so. Okay. That sounds good. All right. Listen, Matt, thanks ever so much for coming on, mate. I know you're a busy guy prepping oh, no, for tomorrow's you. game. Definitely, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I can see you doing it now. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm all, I'm all over it. <laughs> all right, mate. My rebel soldier needs something to do tomorrow. So make sure that happens. And Gaz, pleasure as always, mate. Hope the hand feels better soon. Yeah, it's pretty good. Thanks for coming on, Matt. A, a, a pleasure. I got, got to uh, listen to your rants <laughs> rather than people having to listen to mine. So it'll be a change for both our listeners. <laughs> oh good good well hopefully a change for good but oh, probably not okay guys uh, as usual reach out to us in the normal the normal uh, the normal restricted fashions you can email us you can check us out on any social media site you wish to find because we're going to be there somewhere um, but look us up you'll get us on our on our normal WordPress site we're on iTunes now guys I think we're on iTunes is that the case it's, it's fully functioning at this, at this time yeah we're on Twitter two uh, years we're on people <laughs> two years cutting edge we are <laughs> we need to get we need to outsource this shit seriously right okay until next time that was what the smart party would do thanks guys and see you around bye bye good night